are listening to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Laura Weber Davis. And I'm Jake Neer. We're sitting in for Stephen Henderson today, and thank you so much. We know that we told you last week that we're going to be talking about the health of the Great Lakes today, but as you know, a lot has unfolded over the weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia. So we're going to move our Great Lakes episode to Wednesday. So please join us for that. It's a very important issue. We think so. And so we want to get to it, and we want to get to your calls on that subject. But first, over the weekend, we witnessed as a nation an emboldened group of white supremacists gather in Charlottesville, Virginia, in protest of the removal of Confederate monuments. Thousands of white men carrying torches marched down a darkened pathway. They were chanting bigoted sentiments against Jews. And it harkened back to this dark era in American history of lynching and unregulated violence against black people. The following morning, many of those same white men marched with Confederate and Nazi flags. Some of them came dressed in combat fatigues and carried large rifles. As we saw, the ensuing clashes with counter-protesters spread chaos and confusion throughout that city and eventually led to a white supremacist from Ohio ramming his car or hitting another car into a group of peaceful protesters marching down the street. They killed one woman and injured many others. It's true that the KKK rallies and white supremacist movements that we've seen aren't really new in this country, and neither is neo-Nazism. But it's hard to tell how much, if at all, the sentiment is growing. Or are we just living in this window of time when those groups feel just more free to live a life of public hatred and bigotry? We're going to spend the hour talking about that subject today. A little bit later in the program, we'll talk to an eyewitness who was there in Charlottesville. And we'll hear from local experts who covered the rise of the white nationalist movement here in Michigan or have witnessed or researched the history of uh, racial violence in America. So please stick with us, and we want to hear from you on the phones, your reactions to the violence over the weekend. We want to hear from you all hour. 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. I'm very pleased to welcome our first guest to the show today. Tony Horwitz is a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's the author of Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I, in, in reading through your book this weekend, which is a 20-year-old book or nearly 20 years old, I couldn't help but feel how much of it still felt relevant today and how much I was feeling like I was reading sentiments espoused over the past year throughout the campaign and sort of the renewed energy uh, around these sort of separatist groups. And I wanted to start actually with one anecdote when you're traveling around with a band of hardcore uh, Confederate war reenactors. And one of them, who's actually from New York and travels south to follow this group, says, uh, that his reasoning for joining up with this group is that, quote, I think there's a lot of people like me who want to get back to a simpler time, Sandlot baseball, cowboys and Indians, and the Civil War, which is a a funny thing in in and of itself, right, because a simpler time and the Civil War don't really seem to go hand in glove. But also, it, it, um, it felt for me a little bit like Make America Great Again, and I kept thinking to myself, this maybe is just a feeling that is pervasive among a super, certain group of people that we need to get back to something that was more special than now. Uh, what are your feelings about that sort of feeling that you ran into 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think by a simpler time, uh, this person and others meant uh, a time of moral clarity uh, when people were were fighting for a clear 
cause on either side. Now, of course, there's a lot of uh, fiction in that, uh, but there's this this sense that everything has become uh, much more confused. So I think that's uh, what that person um, was referring to. And I'd be careful about sort of lumping Confederate reenactors and other sort of Civil War enthusiasts with what we saw in Charlottesville, uh, which was really um, white supremacists, you know, uh, using uh, Confederate symbols um, and a Confederate monument in this case as as really an excuse to... uh, you know, provoke uh, uh, violence and also express, you know, uh, bluntly anti-Semitic, racist, and, uh, you know, other bigoted views. So I think uh, these are are different strands of of Confederate memory. You do talk to a lot of people, and yes, there's clear distinctions. The people that you followed in in this particular segment, they were not talking uh, uh, about race and hatred. They were really enthusiasts of this era for these particular group of men, the, the Confederate soldiers, the, the type of strife that they faced with famine, etc. Um, but where did, there are a lot of people you talk to, and it's very nuanced, uh, the, the philosophies or the thoughts that surround their position in this country and where the country is going. Were there some lines that were sort of drawn as far as um, Southern pride that turned into... Um, more of like a wanting a modern day confederacy and wanting to maybe see something reignited that looked more like the confederacy. Absolutely. So uh, apart from reenactors, uh, I did spend a lot of time with uh, white supremacist groups uh, who were doing very much what we saw uh, on Saturday. In fact, one of the advertised speakers, Michael Hill, is uh, a professor I quote in my uh, book who uh, leads a group called the League of the South that essentially is trying to revive the Confederacy on, on political grounds. They're not really that interested in, you know, what happened at Gettysburg. And I would uh, uh, guess that many of those uh, who came out on Saturday uh, on the white supremacist side know nothing about the Civil War or Robert E. Lee. Hmm. Um, they're really uh, piggybacking on that uh, heritage uh, movement. Um, and, uh, you know, using it for contemporary political ends. And, yes, at the very extreme end, you have people who, who really see another race war coming and want to uh, brace for that. Uh, there are others who have latched on to this fantasy of, of ethnic cleansing of whites. That was something I heard a lot in the 90s and I think uh, resonates with what we're hearing now. Speaking of this being in the 90s, do you think that these sentiments are growing, some of the sentiments you heard in researching this book, or do you think that this is just a period of being emboldened? I think these uh, these periods where, where these kind of groups come to the fore, it's often a backlash uh, uh, back in the 50s and 60s against the uh, uh, civil rights movement. Um, in the 80s and 90s, uh, growing uh, sort of support for affirmative action and, and, and other programs. And perhaps some of this is, is in response to the Obama presidency and, and um, you know, the perception of what uh, Donald Trump is saying or, or not saying. As to whether it's getting stronger, I can't really tell. I think it's changed. I think it's moved online. I think there's this whole world online that, that has... Um, really changed the scene since I was out in the 90s where uh, you didn't yet have, uh, or those tools weren't yet very sophisticated. 
Yeah, Tony, this is Jake Neer. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, when it comes to this question about whether or not uh, groups are actually feeling more emboldened, I mean, just what is your take on uh, how Donald Trump fits into this equation as president, and especially considering his reaction to the violence over the weekend? Yeah, well, what, what strikes me just comparing to the 90s is I think a lot of what I saw and heard in the South uh, has, has effectively gone national. And it, it was always there to a degree. In the 90s, you had militia groups that were very strong in Michigan and other places. Uh, but this sense of white uh, aggrievement that, that somehow um, white civil rights are, are under threat, um, you know, I, I think, you know, in my view, yes, Trump has uh, either winked at that or, or played on that, um, uh, sometimes explicitly, at other times, uh, really in the rather uh, sly way he did it on on Saturday by you know condemning violence by all groups. Uh, so yes, I think it has uh, emboldened uh, certain groups to feel like this is their moment, um, and uh, you know they're coming to the fore. But uh, I you know I can't really say going forward you know uh, how strong this movement is. I'm curious, though, when it comes to sort of, I mean, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know much more about this than I do, but the the, the tactics have largely and for a long time been violence and intimidation uh, by many of these groups. But do you think that there is an opening for these groups to move into a more traditional political sphere? Or, I mean, it, it just seems to me like if you have a prominent politician, especially the president, uh, it seems maybe not worried about, or that it is worried about alienating this group as part of his own coalition, maybe, um, that that might signal that that's, that's a possibility, at least in their minds. Yeah, sure, in their own minds. I mean, I think, again, it's important to emphasize the, these are small fringe groups. Uh, I don't know exactly how many were out there on, on Saturday, uh, but, you know, we're talking, uh, uh, you know, in the hundreds and nationally, obviously, more than that. Uh, but I don't think we should, you know, uh, imagine that, you know, this is um, uh, a, you know, a mass <laughs> a mass movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of what strikes me is that uh, I suspect a lot of the people I would have talked to in my book who were defenders of the um, Confederate flag and the Confederacy not on political grounds are appalled by this um, because essentially it's stripping away the notion that the Confederacy and Confederate symbols are just a benign honoring of heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, These white supremacists are really uh, uh, taking it back to to 1860 when uh, southern states, as they seceded, stated very explicitly what they were up to, that they were uh, uh, fighting for the perpetuation of slavery and white supremacy. So I think this is um, can also be seen as a, a rearguard action, a, a last gasp of this uh, lost cause ideology. You're listening to Detroit Today. We're speaking with Tony Horwitz. He's the author of Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's a very good read um, and still relevant today, though it is 19 years old. Uh, Tony, I- I'm curious in your research what you came across that was effective in sort of dismantling or dispelling some of these belief systems when they become already ingratiated in a white man or white woman, a belief that one is better than. Uh, What are the more effective tactics that can be used either at the federal level or on the individual level 
in turning somebody once they sort of isolate themselves in this way? Yeah, I'm not sure how much you can do from the outside. I really think it's, it's something that has to come from inside. And I think uh, generations of, of white Southerners were marinated in this uh, uh, sort of fantasy about the Confederacy and what it stood for. And I think uh, many of those people grow up and see the world as it is and, and, and realize, you know, gee, what they were taught as kids uh, it isn't really true to the history and, and to the facts. So I think it's something that has to uh, come from inside. I also don't know how much of this, uh, certainly in the case of the people out in Charlottesville, really has to do with the ideology or certainly to do with the Confederacy. Uh, It's about other uh, social ills, uh, people who are looking uh, for a cause, for an identity, and in some cases just an excuse for violence. I mean, clearly uh, uh, some of these were just, you know, angry people who were, you know, uh, just couldn't wait to start a fight. So I don't know whether ideology is, is really at the core of this. Tony Horowitz is the author of Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Please check his book out. Like I said, it is 20 years old, but it feels very relevant today. And he's very easy to read. That book is very easy to read. So please check it out. Coming up, we're going to speak with an eyewitness who was in Charlottesville when the violence broke out and saw the aftermath of the car accident that killed a woman. That's coming up next on Detroit Today. Stick with us. WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer with Laura Weber Davis, filling in for Stephen Henderson today. We're talking all hour about the events in Charlottesville, Virginia over the weekend and white supremacist groups in the United States. Now let's hear from someone who was on the street when a car plowed into counter-protesters in Charlottesville, killing 32-year-old Heather D. Heyer and injuring 19 others. Dan Gottlieb is an associate professor of psychology at Sweetbriar College. He was near the car incident in Charlottesville, and he saw the aftermath. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thank you. First of all, um, how are you doing after this event? Are, are you doing okay? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Um, I didn't witness the crash directly, um, so I was nearby and then got to see the aftermath, but I did not have to, to go through that, at least, that trauma. Um, yes. No, I'm, I'm fine. Good. Uh, so describe what you saw and, and heard and felt uh, when you were on the scene of that attack. Um, well, I mean, at first there was a lot of confusion. Uh, it, it, it wasn't exactly clear um, what had happened, um, who was hurt, how badly people were hurt. Um, so... Uh, there was there was that there was a lot of people sort of waiting and watching um and um it was definitely subdued so i i would say before that happened um uh the feeling was a little bit different and afterwards i think there was you know the seriousness of the of what had happened slowly crept up on people um but it was mostly fairly subdued um uh, there was a crowd around there the emergency vehicles came in and um and slowly did what they needed to do um and 
Did did you get the sense that people understood what had just happened in front of them or had, you know, sort of any any direct reaction? Obviously, right after the yeah. incident, people were sort of storming the car. You could tell that it was this moment of uh, more sort of uh, tense, uh, you know, uh, it was it was directly uh, a reaction that we have to sort of get this guy. But when it comes to when you got on the scene, where were people he- where were people's heads at at that point um, well i think the people that were that were there and had directly witnessed it and the and of course the people that were injured had a very different perspective um some of the people who directly witnessed it were um were clearly very upset some of them were running around screaming sometimes screaming at the police for example why weren't you there um why mm. weren't you there you were supposed to protect us um was heard a number of times um by a number of people um but for for everyone else, again, it, it was it was um, again subdued. I, I think people just didn't really understand what was going on at that time, um, and didn't for many hours, I think, um, until things trickled out. So there was a big disconnect between the small group who was actually there, witnessed it directly, had it impact them, and I think the larger group around who slowly came to terms with what was happening. Sure. Uh, what what brought you down to the protest uh, over the weekend? What was it that uh, drove you to be on the scene? Well. Um, you know, honestly, there's a there was a, a large white supremacist rally in, in my backyard. I felt both, honestly, a curiosity and also an obligation to be there. Mm, sure. And did you ever feel like there was danger brewing? Did you ever feel like you were personally in danger while you were there? Clearly, from the the footage that we've all seen, uh, tensions were certainly running high the entire time. Yeah. So, so my experience, I don't know how how similar it was to other people. There's quite a bit of chaos, and you can only be in one place at one time. Um, but, but for the most part, no, I didn't feel any personal danger. Um, I, um, I was dressed as I normally am, which was sort of jeans and a t-shirt, um, and could blend in with any group if I wanted to. And it was not always easy to know who was who. Uh, and, um, and most of the time, if you, if you wanted to stay away from the fighting, you could fairly easily. It wasn't as if you, know, you just got caught in it too often. Um, there were some people on both sides who went to fight, I believe. Um, most people did not, on um, at least on the counter-protest side, um, and uh, and so and so no, it didn't feel particularly dangerous to me. There was one time I felt menaced um, uh, after it was originally disbanded at Emancipation Park. There was um, no one really knew what to do, but no one went home, and so. Um, uh, my friend and I followed a large group of the white supremacists as they made the about one and a half mile walk to a different park um, on Chaperone. You know, just and and and, um, and, it, and as I was walking there, um, uh, there weren't many other people there, so it, it was it was interesting. We were sort of deciding whether we seemed like we were with them or not, and then we ended up talking to. Um, and walking with a, a, a black photographer for a media organization um, who was there too, and that changed things. That made it clear who we were at that point. Um, and uh, and there was a point where uh, we were walking behind them, and uh, another group came up from sort of behind us and asked what media we were for. A group of a few. Mm. Um, they were not particularly friendly to say the least. Um, made some comment that seemed menacing, and I don't remember what it was. It was sort of I'm not sure if I've ever really heard exactly. And they passed us, and then they sort of stopped and made sure we passed so that they could be behind us as we walked. And that mm. was the one time I felt a little bit of 
well, I had to pay more attention because there weren't cops there around. Um, they could have done what they wanted to us at that point. Yeah. Do you think that it was purposely meant to intimidate you? Yeah, I do. I think. Yeah. And I, whatever whatever was said, I remember that was the clear feeling in my mind was, okay, this is where this one's going. So I do. I think that was intentional. And the people I was with thought that was intentional as mm-hmm. well. Um, but, I mean, it wasn't – it was um, – it was relatively minor. For the most part, again, it, it, the thing felt mostly subdued with these pockets of intensity. Um, it didn't have the feeling like it was all chaos all the time. It, it, didn't, it didn't feel that way to me, at least, um, at all. Sure. Well, so I know this is all too fresh in your memory, but at this point, what do you think you take away from this entire experience? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. And, um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I study behavior a lot, and I, I'm used to sort of looking at things as objectively as possible. So I always ask my question, what would an alien, you know, an alien group <laughs> trying to study us see here? Right. And, um, and there were a number of things that, that came to mind. And, and I think um, one of the biggest was the demographics of the groups was so clear that it's, it's, it's not possible to ignore it, that you had one group that was basically um, a cross-section of America and age and gender and, and a lot of stuff and looking very normal. And I, I took pictures. I took very pictures of the counter, very few of the counter-protesters because they looked just like normal people. Um, and then on the other side, it was all white, all male, um, mostly young. Um, and... Um, and it was very striking, the distinction, the difference there. But the other thing that really stood out was, um, was when you saw the different white supremacist groups together. They all had different flags, and they were flying them. There was um, a sense that I'd never seen that all out in the open together before. Um, and it felt, I mean, it's a sort of a stupid example, but I had the same feeling when I read in Harry Potter and the Death Eater sort of came out in the open for the first time. There was that same feeling where where you, you were witnessing something big, like, a, you know, in a sense, oh, okay, now all of a sudden what was hidden is now not. Um, and that was an interesting aspect of it, um, this disconnect between that and the mundane reality. You know, the person with the Nazi flag right next to a car with a home tutoring sign on it, and like, you know, talking peacefully. I mean, it was just a weird, there was that weird disconnect. Um, but I think seeing it all open, it, 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 it um, it just made clear all the ties. It made clear that, that all the ways that these individual groups had tried to justify their existence one way or another was all kind of BS, that what you were really seeing was a set of groups unified by one thing only, which was a white supremacist views, and that was it. Um, and, and they were out there, and you sort of, in a sense, you saw the enemy clearly for the first time, I think. Um, and so that was interesting and disturbing. Um, it was also a little bit hopeful because they... They weren't impressive. I think they wanted to be, you know, they, I'm sure they wanted to see themselves as tough and strong and wonderful specimens of humanity walking. They didn't seem like that. They seemed like angry misfits, sort of. And, and you know, when you looked at the normal people that were protesting them, and then when you looked at the law enforcement, including a lot of the tactical groups that looked really tough and strong and capable, the contrast was, was just striking. Um, and so in my mind, it was frightening to see them all together, and especially because the links to, frankly, our president, which were clear to them at least, um, uh, it was a very, very pro-Trump, tied-to-Trump sort of overall group. But when you sort of saw all that um, uh, together, what I, what I got a sense was not that society was going downhill and they were going to take over at all, that they were losing, that this was their heyday, but that there was going to be real problems going forward, that it was going to be a pain and a hassle, and there's going to be violence, and there's going to be sadness and, um, and things happening like this occasionally. 
So that was my, those are my thoughts on it, I think. Yeah, Dan Gottlieb, Associate Professor of Psychology at Sweetbriar College. He was near the car accident in Charlottesville and saw the aftermath. Dan, we're so glad that you're safe, and uh, we thank you so much for joining us today on Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you for covering this. You're listening to Detroit Today. Stick with us. Right after this, we will talk with a local journalist and a local expert about how we got here to the violence over the weekend in Charlottesville and how we move forward. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. And I'm Jake Neer. Thanks for joining us. We're filling in for Stephen today. We're talking all hour about the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia over the weekend and the violence that occurred there and about modern history of white nationalism and white supremacy in the United States. We're going to turn and look a little bit at the history in Michigan and also just how it's spread over the past 100, 150 years. Let's start quickly with a phone call. Kim in southwest Detroit. Kim, welcome to the program. Hi, and thanks for having me on. Uh, you just mentioned the contemporary history of white supremacy. I think it would be very different if folks in general and white people in particular were actually taught the history of white supremacy as children, straight up, just as people in Germany uh, have to become immersed in the Holocaust there to tamp down the lies. Uh, people need to come to grips with the fact that colonialism and slavery were had endemic in their nature, murder, rape, and torture on a variety of levels. And once that becomes ingrained, you will still have some people that are going to act nutty, but you will have many, many fewer of them, and you will not be able to elect a president who is a white supremacist and who baits them in order to stay in power. Kim, thank you so much for kicking off this segment. I appreciate Mm -hmm. the phone call and for you hanging on the line. Also, if you'd like to share your opinion about the events over the weekend or what you're making of this sort of emboldened bigotry we're experiencing right now in our country, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. I'd like to invite our guests in now, uh, two people who I'm very excited to have with me today to help us suss out a little bit of what we saw over the weekend. Alan Langle is a publisher of DeadlineDetroit.com. He was also, he's been a veteran journalist for many years. He worked at the Washington Post and the Detroit News where he covered the Oklahoma City bombing and the connection to the Nichols brothers here and white supremacy in Michigan. As well, I'm welcoming Kadata Williams, an associate professor of African American history at Wayne State University with an expertise in racial violence. Alan, Kadata, thank you so much for joining us Thanks today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Uh, Alan, let's just start with the historical perspective here. Uh, thinking about the Michigan militia and its role in a, uh, a supremacist movement here, in a different type of supremacist movement, because their belief, their belief system, the way they portrayed it to the world was, we just want to be prepared for anything, and we want to protect our rights. And it wasn't necessarily surrounding racial violence, but there was always that tinge of of that or right. a, a separatist um, sort of belief system. Right. I, th- I think one of the things we, we discovered was that Tim McVeigh was, was in Michigan with uh, the Nichols brothers, and one of the things that Tim McVeigh was living in Buffalo and felt Buffalo was too liberal and 
move, wanted to move on. And, and so there is certainly that conservative uh, bent of, of these groups and whether, you know, whether they're racist or not. I mean, I'm sure it's, it, it's a mixed, mixed thing there, but they're, they're certainly there. And I think in uh, 1995, when we went up to Decker, Michigan, uh, when they were executing search warrants on the farmhouse, the Nichols farmhouse, we were surprised how pervasive uh, the militias were up there and, and, and surprised by and, and hadn't heard much about the anti-government movement and, and the, you know, the resentment toward farm foreclosures and, and really mm. just about government intrusion. And so it, it was particularly interesting. And I, and I think the one thing we have, we still have militias in, in, in the state of Michigan on quite, a, you know, quite a few. And I think they're very small and, and I don't think they, you know, there isn't any indication that they all are working together, but uh, they're certainly here in, in the state. Well, what sense is there about growth or dissipation of the populations of these of these groups? That of the militias. I, yeah. You know, I'm, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm not clear about that. The one thing is, is interesting, though, uh, over the research and, and reporting that I've done over time, when Obama came into office, I was calling people in law enforcement and different organizations that monitor that. And I was saying, well, are, are you seeing like a big spike in, in, in membership? Are they really out there using this as, hey, you know, our worst nightmares come true. We have a black president. And the answer was there wasn't a lot of that happening. And then the same thing with Trump. I was calling around and saying, hey, are you seeing like a big recruiting movement? Like Trump's here and he's saying it's OK to say this or that. And and again, they were saying no. And I think one of the things is. We, we don't see, and, and, and there are certainly, you know, exceptions there, but generally we're not seeing a, a lot of great organization with these groups, and a lot of these groups aren't very well funded. And again, there, there may be some exceptions there, but we're, I, I, in 2002 I covered the Nazi rally where the, the neo-Nazis were demonstrating in front of the Israeli embassy on behalf of the Palestinians, hmm. and they were chanting uh, freedom for Palestine, a rope for every Finkelstein. Wow! Mm-hmm. And they and and meanwhile there were counter counter protesters there, including Palestinians who were like, "No, you please, don't, we don't yeah, need you. Thank we, you. Yeah, <laughs> we, you don't speak for us." And and one of the things that and I interviewed both sides. I was going back and forth, and police had separated the two groups. And I would go up to the head guy from the National Alliance out of West Virginia, and I'd say, "How are things going today?" And he'd be like. This is great. He goes, we're getting a lot of great publicity. Right. And so there, you know, the other, the other thing I, I just want to note is that they're easily penetrated uh, groups. Uh, the FBI does not have a hard time penetrating these groups and going undercover. Well, and part of that would and, speak to me about a lack of organization. And I, yeah. I want to get to that. Here, Jake, you had a question? Yeah, uh, Kadada, I wanted to uh, kind of piggyback off of something that Alan said. When it comes to these groups and their direct membership, the people who directly espouse to be parts of these groups that are members, so forth, it, you know, there might be a difference, I think, between those people and then what they these groups mean for people who don't want to be out in the open as supporting these groups. Uh, and, and maybe I wonder if there's a difference between... Um, where the, how those people are feeling now as opposed to maybe several years ago. Do you have a sense of that? Well, I think that there might not be a rise in membership, but there might be a rise in association, 
or allyship with uh, the group. So they might not feel comfortable joining the group or being seen with the group, but they have some of the sim- they have some of the same beliefs and often act on them in ways that are over and covert. Mm. And so I think that we do need to make sure we thread that line between formal membership within the groups and a commitment to the same values. Mm. Because a commitment to the same values um, means that the problem is bigger than we might fully recognize. And, and what does it mean for sort of the more, uh, I guess, uh, institutional racism that we see in society to have these groups that are just openly bigoted? What is the, if you could put that into sort of context, is there, um, you know, what is, is there a correlation there? Well, I think that one of the things that institutions do, especially in response to groups like this, is often erase or mask their intentions. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things that are going on there. There is the sort of comfort with saying that unless you are over, unless you are a formal member of a Nazi group, then racism doesn't exist. So what what we've done is that we've said that racism is the ugly boogeyman. It It is the member of this group. Racism only exists in that construct. Um, It doesn't exist in institutions. So that's why you see a lot of resistance to the idea of institutionalized racism um, or even even, uh, harboring racist beliefs. Um, And what sometimes institutions do, and we saw it in the reporting surrounding Charlottesville, is, and even reactions to the Charlottesville by the University of Virginia, is not naming the groups for what they really were. I mean, so the groups are strategic. They've got really innocuous sounding names, right? And if you just so if you solely report on the name, then you can say, well, you know, this is, you know, American, you know, XYZ. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they often, what institutions do <clears throat> is they refuse to name their ideology. They refuse to name what they're saying, uh, describe what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So even like on college campuses, when you see these um these protests emerge, what universities often do is say, you know, we're committed to free speech, and I understand Mm -hmm. that. But what they're not acknowledging is the kind of speech that is evoking these kinds of protests on campus. So that's the way I think the institutions can sometimes play a role in shielding these groups and not confronting racism the way we need to. Yeah, we, we heard from a Trump supporter on NPR this morning who said that he is not, he started off by saying, I am not a white supremacist or a white nationalist, but these groups are different than when I was a kid. They say they're, it's not about being better, it's about being everyone being equal. What, what is your reaction to that mentality? Well, I think, again, it's part, it's part of the larger strategy, right, of denying... Um, of alighting what the groups are actually doing, you know, or so you know, you focusing on the innocuous, superficial, front-facing um, way they try to portray portray themselves. But the guys in Charlottesville carrying torches, uh, chanting "Jews will not replace us," right? Right. Um, doing the Nazi salute, mm. chanting "Heil Trump." Mm-hmm. That says something very different from what the caller is indicating, right? And they're communicating what they want. They're communicating what they believe. But I think it's dangerous for us to give them cover or to allow people to give them cover um, with these sort of um, romanticized or these idealistic views that, oh, they're, you know, they're only committed to true equality. And even that idea of true equality doesn't acknowledge the ways that the United States has been built on inequality. So I think we need to make sure that we are pushing back with the proper tools. 
I, I would say, it, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's interesting the difference that we're seeing that I saw in 2002 covering a rally and then seeing that in Charlottesville. I mean, usually, I mean, one, Charlottesville is a pretty liberal town, it's a college town. Uh, so these groups love to go into areas where they know they're going to be extremely provocative and, and, and cause, you know, quite a, a strong reaction. Uh, there was a strong reaction back in 2002. I mean, we had all the Zig Heils. We had the, uh, the sides, you know, the, the counter-protesters screaming. We had police separating in between. But I, I feel the, the intensity of this one, which obviously came out in a much more violent way, mm-hmm. is that one side is feeling a little more emboldened to express itself, and the counter-protesters are feeling a little bit more desperation that mm-hmm. this is just more than a freedom of expression that we've seen in the past. This is part of a fascist movement here that we're seeing from the top on down. And I feel the intensity of that really sort of resulted in what we saw So over more the like a, a movement trying to build and another group trying to suppress that movement from building too right. much. And both feeling the sense of urgency, but particularly the counter-protesters feeling like this is our opportunity. We're seeing, the, you know, since Trump came in, we're seeing people feeling a little bit more uh, comfortable about expressing uh, feelings that they felt suppressed about the, you know, political correctness. And I, I think they feel that desperation there that they've taken it up a notch. So, Let's go back to the phones. I'd like to get some callers and perspectives in on this conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number to call. Again, 313-577-1019. <laughs> Anne in Commerce. Anne, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, I would just, uh, I really agree with the comments so far. And um, I want to... Um, address the fact that I think it's really institutional racism and pervading white privilege that supports the whole system of inequality. And um, while any individual white person, you know, most of the time people don't see that they have white privilege, they don't understand white privilege, what it means. And um, it's, it's not the individual acts of a few crazy people that hold the whole system up. It's really the whole body of white privilege and institutional racism. And when we go look at, when we think about Germany, I mean, how did the fascists come to power? They, they, unleashed, the, uh, they unleashed the frustration of the German people who ha- were so um, stressed and uh, had, you know, lost many things after World War I. And so the Nazis were able to recruit them to support the Nazis. So most of the people who became the big supporters of the Nazis, they started out just being frustrated German people, but then they were uh, pulled into and recruited into the full power sure. of the of Hitler's government. Yep. Where in this country, if we have to address the overwhelming uh, inequality and the um, the white privilege that holds up the whole system, and people like Trump. They're using the frustrations of individual working class white people and others to um, to recruit them to their point of view. And it's sure. only we hear about these few crazies who really are, I think, really on the fringes of um, society. But but 
And so we see these individual hate crimes that are so horrible. Yeah. Thank but it's really the whole system. Well, thank you, Anne. I really appreciate those thoughts. Uh, Kidada, there's a couple points that Anne was making that I'd like to get to. One is the discussion you and I have been having over the weekend, um, which is the, the difference between white allyship and white activism, which is uh, a really important distinction that I think you were making with me earlier. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of both of those things. Right. I think that part of what the caller is speaking to is, so there are a couple of things here, but I think one of the things is that there is a sense in movements like this and even in counter movements uh, or counter activism like we've seen in Charlottesville is this belief in the need for white people to play a very active role in confronting racism where it exists. And it's not enough to be an ally, someone who sees themselves as assisting people of color fight this. Um, White anti-racism is committed to understanding that for people like the caller, that if you're going to really confront racism, you have to do it in, you have to use people or you have to have people like the caller stand up and recognize and call out to people in spaces where only white people operate. Right. Um, to challenge racism, to educate them on racial privilege, to educate them on the way whiteness works. And so I think that if we're going to do more work, Um, If we're going to be successful in challenging racist ideas, we have to have more, in this case, white people who are willing to go and do that hard work, who are going to go into those spaces, who are going to go where the rot of racist beliefs exists and where it thrives, in churches, in schools, in family unions, in family gatherings, et cetera, to do the hard work. But on on the other hand, there's no question that it is hard work, but especially it's it's the difference between an organized group or it's the same thing, right? Uh, on the counter side, uh, an organized group or on an individual basis, especially if you go to a family reunion and you hear language that offends you, these are still people you have to be related to. Right. So it's hard on an individual basis. And then even beyond that, saying, I'm going to organize with a group of people who feel like I do, and, and I'm going to actively work against this. Right. I think that you need both, yeah. right? Um, you need both um, to do that work in order for it to be successful. And the great thing is that there are groups, there are white anti-racist groups that play a role in training people to have those conversations um, in their families, in their communities. And they're committed to doing things like calling people in, not calling people out, not shaming or embarrassing people or hurting their feelings because they recognize that they're family members. They recognize that these people still have to operate in these same social circles, but still equipping them with the tools they need to do the work that they're committed to. Right. Alan? I was, I was going to say, you know, the, <clears throat> one of the interesting underlying issues there is the whole thing about the, the Confederacy and the South. Uh, in 2003, I, w- I was at the Washington Post and I did a fellowship down at Duke for, for a month and some friends from Detroit came in and we went to Raleigh and there's a statue of the first Confederate soldier killed uh, in North Carolina. And we were talking about it and trying to, you know, say, you know, as a northerner <clears throat> saying, wait a minute, you know, this this to us is, is this racist war. Why are you trying to, you know, memorialize it in a way? And so we see the removal of the Robert E. Lee, which some people may see as a Southern history, which, you know, a lot of us see as like, oh my God, just another, the vestiges of, of racism and the Confederacy. And I think it's kind of an interesting 
uh, issue down there in terms of some, sometimes that particularly as Northerners don't really understand. Uh, but yeah, Kidana. Right. I was just going to say, I think that what we also know is that these statues are part of the part of the sort of larger system of terrorism. Right. And that there's a way of conflating Southern history with white history and not acknowledging the diversity of the South. And some of the people who defend the Confederate statues, you know, they cloak themselves in the language of heritage. And what they're often talking about is personal heritage. And yet I suspected if you ask them if they can, you know, provide any documentary proof that they had an ancestor who fought in the Confederacy, they will say no. Because it's not really about having an ancestor in the Confederacy. Just because you're in the South and you're white doesn't mean that your uh, that your ancestors supported the Confederacy. They might have even been Unionists, right? And and conversely, yeah. right? I was going to say, yeah. and just because you may have had a, a an ancestor who'd fought in the Confederacy doesn't mean that that's something you support either. Exactly, but. What they're doing is acknowledging that they're committed to the Confederate ideology, right, right, about white supremacy and, in the case of the Confederacy, maintaining it through slavery. I mean, when we see somebody driving uh, up in, in Metro Detroit with a Confederate flag on their pickup truck or something, I mean, you know, it's not the first thing I come to mind is like, wow, he's a historian. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. It's confounding any time because there isn't even that argument of well, it's Southern pride, and even if you're from the South, you're not in the South anymore. Right. Well, so uh, the question that I have is, do you think that people realize that they're doing this? Is it a subconscious thing? I mean, on what level do I think it's a sort of people are are driving around with the Confederate flag? I think it's sort of an in-your-face kind of thing. Right. Like, yeah. This is what I believe in. And I know this is like controversial. I, I think it's pretty clear what. Yeah. I want to get back to the phones if that's okay, Kadada, because we yeah. only have a few minutes left. Uh, Brian in Novi. Brian, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yes. And what was your observation yeah. about the weekend? Well, I was sort of stunned when I saw the Red Wing symbol on a mm. group down in uh, yeah. Charlottesville. And then I read the article in Deadline Detroit about it, how the wings were reacting. And I was thinking to myself, the question that I sort of had largely uh, for you guys is that um, do they is, is it common to appropriate non-racist symbols um, in a racist way mm-hmm. in a yeah. racist way yeah. yeah Brian thank you for the call Alan you are of Deadline Detroit you are Deadline yeah. Detroit so please uh, the Red Wings did react immediately when they saw these symbols right. the, their what Red a terrible Wing. image issue for them yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think with. that it was a mod- from what I understand it was a modified Red Wing with an SS symbol or something that had been modified into the symbol um, but I didn't get a close enough look at it. Yeah, That's just something I, I, I that just I know I it was a gr- supposedly a group from Michigan that calls themselves mm-hmm. the right wingers. And they it certainly looked like the Red Wing uh, logo there. And I think for any organization dealing with images, I mean, look, you know, Dan Snyder down at the Redskin is still battling the mm-hmm. image over the, over the Redskin right. issue. And here's like, this is like way Creating something new. Way beyond that. Yeah. So, um, Well, Kadata, let's talk about appropriating non-racist or non-bigoted images in, an, in a bigoted and racist way. Uh, that seems like a good strategy because those are prolific symbols. On the other hand, if I'm the Red Wings, I'm freaking out and thinking, how can I make sure that I let everybody know that this will not be co-opted? Mm-hmm. This is not, we are not them, they are not us, and... 
especially when you look at a Red Wings game and it is going to be a sea of white men, it seems that that's going to be difficult messaging in for some segments, although most of us are going to understand that they are not tied to each other. Right. I think the co-opting or the appropriating of symbols is very easy because you can use the symbol however you want. Once a symbol is out there in a the public space, different groups can use it however they want. And so it is difficult to maintain control over the symbol that you yourself create. But... Um, as the guy, the Pepe cartoon, you know, as you know, that's the you know, frog. That's, yeah, the frog. Um, that's an example of a symbol that was created with not necessarily racist intentions, but has been appropriated. And the creator is still trying to fight to get control of the symbol back, but is finding it very difficult because it has become so popular. The right. swastika mm-hmm. is a, a, a mm-hmm. great example of that. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, the Nazis took it over. Uh, you know, it was an old ancient. And, and actually, I wrote a column about this because there still is the the swastika symbol over at the DIC in tiles. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, and, and it was built, I, I believe, in 19, you know, bef- certainly prior to the Nazi movement, uh, the tiles were put in and, and the DA, I thought it should be removed at this point because it has been co-opted to the point. And the DAC feels that it's part of, you know, history and it, it goes beyond the Nazi symbol. But right. that's. Yeah. And one challenge with that is that, see, again, the group is really strategic. They count on other people's ignorance. Right. Mm. So the people in northern or western Michigan, where I'm from, rolling around with a Confederate flag, count on the ignorance of people to not know better. Right. Um, I also think that some of the people who use these symbols also count on people to not know any better. So they'll say, well, you know, I don't mean it in the Nazi sense. I meant it in the pre-Nazi sense, right? Mm. Right? Um, You know, and so it's, but again, they do that in a strategic way and people's ignorance makes it possible for them to go on and to go unchallenged. People Mm. got mad at me and because I wrote about that and they called me a historical revisionist and said, you're ignoring the thousands of years of it being used by, you know, ancient groups and stuff like that. And I said, well, you're ignoring the last hundred years of it being co-opted. Right. Um. <laughs> well, we have a, about a minute left. Um, I, I think let's try, try and get one more perspective here in on the phone. Sharon in Harrison Township. Sharon, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Okay, I'm listening to this conversation. I'm 66. I grew up in Detroit. Okay, so that, that's my background. I am frustrated, though, because, you know, there's, in terms of where do you get your information from about all this stuff, the historical stuff, the current stuff, you know, you've got journalism, you've got opinion, you've got um, research. Sure. Where do you go? Where does the normal, average person, you know, go to get reliable information? That's a tough one. Thank you, Sharon. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. We could unpack that over an hour. Kadada uh, and Alan, where do you guys go? Kadada's a professor, so she's reading, reading, reading. <laughs> yeah, I always tell my students to go with the Pulitzer Prize winning book in history each year or the National Book Award uh, in history each yeah. year. That's one way to sort of stay on top of well-researched, accessible history. That's great. Alan, what do you read? I, you know, I read. I try to read as much as I can. Uh, Washington Post, New York Times. I even occasionally watch Fox News and uh, you <laughs> know, varied, the National varied, Standard yeah. and, and try to try to read a variety of things. So. Well, that's going to do it for us today. I want to thank Alan Langle from the DeadlineDetroit.com and also Kadata Williams, a professor of American, African-American history here at Wayne State University. Jake Neer, thanks for co-hosting with me today. Thank you. Sandra Svoboda, thank you for producing this hour with me over the weekend as things were unfolding. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.